Hi, I'm Dave Verma. I'm a trusted advisor, trainer and investigator of corporate fraud. Um, I've been doing that for some 30 years now. For about a quarter of a century, I was employed as a corporate fraud manager, which meant I had a staff of 20 people investigating this. These days, um, I'm a freelance consultant. The high points of my career were lecturing at the detective training school for some 11 years, where I, in, um, I trained some 8,000 detectives on fraud, corruption, and also latterly computer crime. I thought that the best way to answer this question um, was to tell you about my real life experience and give you some, some nice strong takeaways um, to have really about, uh, about these matters. Some tangible things that you can write down and I can send you later on um, where you can actually think, yeah, that's what I can do to solve this problem. Um, okay, let's start this now. So the main issues that I find when I'm called in to investigate fraud in the workplace are that controls have broken down. And what we find is that fraudsters have either actively eroded controls or they've exploited more normally the lack of controls or a lack of segregation of duties. Some things that fraudsters tend to exploit time and time again and I could simply rewrite, or sorry, I could use my fraud reports as templates because 90% of the time it's the same issues in every client space that I get called into. Those issues are things like infiltration, whereby fraudsters have come into your organizations with the active idea of um, infiltrating to commit fraud. They've done that through social engineering, sometimes committing identity fraud, not being who they say they are, um, and sometimes using fake identities or stolen identities and duping human resources staff and to get in. Sometimes there's a hidden criminal record um, as well lurking in the background. The next pattern that I tend to see is the exploitation of weak systems or actively making systems that are weak by taking on so much responsibility that um, segregation of duties somehow are eroded and savings are made and systems are streamlined so that they have more control that they need to. The next point that I see serially is a lack of whistleblowing. Now it might surprise you that I'm only sometimes called in when there's been active whistleblowing in the workplace. So every organisation will have a whistleblowing policy I'm sure and an audit team or an anti-fraud team or a team of investigators but normally the whistleblowing has not occurred in the investigations that I've been called into. Um, more likely, what's happened is that um, there's been an error that's occurred whereby the person has left a little trail that they shouldn't have done, or even more likely than that, somebody in the know has not blown the whistle, and then later on, because they feel disgruntled, have blown the whistle. So they've come forward not out of the correct sense of spiritedness that we want to see but because they feel that they're being mistreated in the workplace bullied harassed um, passed over for promotion um, nepotism may have occurred so these kinds of toxic work environments sometimes disaffect people to the point where they feel minded to spill the beans and at that point i'm called in so that's a serial thing i tend to see so I think you're getting the flavor of the types of things, and there's many more serial things I see, but these are the top ones that I tend to see. 
Are there any comments or questions so far before I, I launch into the next part of what I'd like to say? Is there any observations? Has anyone come across anything like this where it was all a big surprise that the person was actually really trusted and then later on it transpired that they were up to something? Because um, that's normally the case. Um, the, the person is very well trusted, very well thought of. They're a good performer. They keep their head well under the radar and they do this to keep the spotlight off themselves. Uh, they definitely don't want to have the limelight. Let's go into some of the takeaways and we're gonna dwell on these a little bit. So you get the picture of what I'm talking about, the serial problems that I tend to see. Let me give you a quick and easy takeaway. This is also lifted from the reports I write in terms of um, lessons learned and recommendations that I tend to serially make after inquiries. Here's the first one. Counter-fraud risk assessment was missing. This means that whilst we might have had a health and safety risk assessment or a risk assessment for many other things, these days being pandemic, pandemic and other things, we didn't have a health, sorry, we didn't have a, a risk assessment in place for counter-fraud. That means we didn't take all our different functions, for example, AP, and then think about all the different ways we might defraud it internally and externally, all the worst case scenarios, and then look at the likelihood and the impact of each of those types of fraud. And then look at the controls we've got um, and kind of revisit those and think, well, I think the likelihood and impact of this particular fraud, for example, mandate fraud, is a bit too high. Um, our procedures aren't really well known and they're a bit out of date. And we had a very near miss last month. So what kind of processes do we really need? What kind of, um, what kind of um, actual, actual systems controls would work? Let's put those in place. Now let's have another thing. What now is the likelihood and the impact? The impact is still a five out of five, but the likelihood's gone down from a five to a three with these new set of controls we've put in. So normally that annual function has failed and it's been a very old set of procedures that have been in place that people are maybe not adhering to anymore. So my first big empower you point in this empower session for you to take away is to think about counter fraud risk assessment as something that you're responsible for as an AP supervisor, AP manager, for you to proactively ask for that and say, I had some training by this guy, he had a very big beard, he was a bit annoying, but one thing I took away was this whole thing about counter fraud risk assessment and go to someone in your organization and say, well, how do we run this? What can we do? Now, I can tell you what you do in broad terms. It's a spreadsheet, essentially, with your risks along one side and then all the you know, impacts and likelihoods down the other. And uh, then you, you treat your risks with controls to hopefully bring down the risk. We either treat, we tolerate, um, you know, and we, we do other things with these risks, but hopefully I don't want to tolerate these risks. I'll be honest with you. We want to treat these risks. We don't really want to transfer them. We don't really want to tolerate them. We want to treat them and deal with it. Point B of this takeaway point number one, another big and easy win, low hanging fruit, is to relaunch your whistleblowing policy and maybe invoke the services of an independent person or company to take those whistleblowing inquiries or complaints or investigations so that people have more confidence about coming forward. Um, because if you haven't had whistleblowing for an awfully long time, 
it may mean people either don't know about it or they don't trust it because they think certain members of staff are Teflon. And it doesn't matter what they do, they're never dealt with. Um, you know, for example, they got their job because they knew someone and then they got rid of a load of other people and brought in all the people they knew um, and all of them are a bit, a bit dodgy. They've all got conflicts of interest with contractors. They turn a blind eye to certain things and not, nothing's ever done. There's no point blowing the whistle because it'll be you who gets done over. So eradicating that by relaunching a whistleblowing and outsourcing it essentially. My training offerings is something that I'm very passionate about. And I wrote one of the country's first accredited courses on counter-fraud risk assessment. And I currently offer a CPD course on it. I'm not the only person who can train you. Takeaway two, the understanding that you as critical people within the AP function have an important part to play in anti-fraud. It's not just about the auditors, the investigators coming round and you know counting their beans, for instance, um, and looking at transactions. They're not gonna do that really. They're gonna look at systems procedures and make overarching recommendations. They're only really gonna get involved when there's been a complaint or an, or an inquiry. It's down to you through performance management to take it on board understand it sits with you as one of your key priorities, anti-fraud, prevention, detection, deterrence, remedy, acknowledging, preventing, pursuing, all those functions sit with you. That's part of your essential, um, essential JD, as it were, your person spec. Um, understanding that can save the nightmares later, because if you understand that, then you're not going to shirk that duty. You're going to actively take it on and you're going to delegate accordingly to your staff so they also know they've got a critical role to play um, in anti-fraud obviously we're talking about spotting transactions obviously we're talking about you know working with really good technologies like the one we're talking about today um, but obviously we're also talking about eyes and ears and if you have heard something or your staff know about a conflict or a contractor who's groomed someone internally and that comes to the fore at the coffee machine with gossip but it's it's founded it's grounded you know there's probably something in it that that does get dealt with it doesn't just disappear into the ether so they are my takeaway one and two the first one was corporate fraud risk assessment and also relaunching whistleblowing number two is understanding the critical role we have taking it on formally in our performance management and delegating it accordingly Takeaway number three, I want to share with you again some of the high risk areas um, to empower you with knowledge from a person that's been doing it 30 years. I said infiltration and I shall repeat that to you. Part of due diligence is know your employee, clearly know your contractor, know your supplier, know your partners um, in business. Yes, but know your staff member, be they through agency, on a contract basis, a consultant, or a member of staff, knowing your employees is very, very important and understanding the pressures they may have matrimonially with divorce settlements, with school fees, with healthcare, with gambling, drinking, other problems, but also knowing people who might be fraudsters who come in, doing the vetting properly. I would advise everyone in mission critical roles like yours that you or whoever's the responsible manager has a second critical eye on the vetting 
to satisfy themselves it's been done properly. The references, why are they coming from a Gmail account? Why aren't they coming from a .co.uk or .com or the workplace where they said they worked? Things like that, simple things like this and looking at qualifications, looking at work histories, um, just making sure it all really makes sense. And then having a look at identities primarily. Do the identities match? Is it the same photograph? Is it the same person? You know, these are simple things that I often come across that people simply haven't checked. So I will reiterate again to you that um, in, in my takeaway point three, I want to empower you to understand that infiltration is a massive risk. I run ID verification courses, so do other people. It's something you may wish to consider or just make sure you do some sampling yourself of high-risk positions. The second big thing I see serially are conflicts of interest in the workplace. People who know people internally, externally, contractors, where they should not be involved in an employment, um, i.e. in recruitment. They should not be involved in selecting those tenders or deciding on them. They should not be involved in making those payments or chasing that debt, or more likely making decisions about writing off that debt. <laughs> so conflicts of interest would seem to be a recurrent theme in why I'm called in, undeclared conflicts of interest which links to the first point, doesn't it, on infiltration. The next big point um, which, which I come across a lot is procurement fraud. Um, I'm an expert trainer and investigator on procurement fraud. I've written courses on that. Procurement fraud being something that occurs pre-procurement at the tendering stage, in delivery, overcharging, and sorry, under delivery, overcharging, and post-procurement with, with the technology we're talking about today in finding essential post-procurement fraud in double invoicing, over-invoicing and all these kinds of things. But procurement fraud is a massive area to become aware about. Whistleblowing I've mentioned already, bribery and corruption. Why would people have conflicts of interest? Why would they recruit people who they know? Why would they engage in nepotism? Is it just doing favours or is it bribery and corruption? What is it? Takeaway four is, I want you to really understand, I really mean this from my heart, is that if you understand that your role in corporate fraud is so weighty um, and you empower yourself with knowledge, training and doing it the right way, this can only be good personally for you in your career because being an effective manager and rising up through the ranks and getting to lofty positions of managers, directors and the rest of it, if you are a good anti-fraud person, this is only something to your credit. So I would think not only can you not, not only preventing not being able to sleep at night syndrome, we're also actually enhancing the quality of everything you do, but your career. <laughs> if I, I get involved in being, being an expert on, well, an expert guide um, on interviews for, um, for critical positions, and if people start talking about security in the right way, anti-fraud in the right way, systems, procedures, good management, understanding that toxic cultures lead to these problems and therefore we don't want bullying and harassment. We don't want nepotism. If people start saying things like that, then I, I'm very inclined to understand they've got real life experience. We want people like that. Technically, I can give people tips, we can have training, but if they intuit what the real mission critical things are, um, then I think that can only be good, good for your own career development. So knowing how to establish that anti-fraud culture and linking it all to performance management, I shall take a question that's just come in. Um, I'll probably take it now. 
Question for Dave, any tips for getting corporate buy-in for things like the risk assessment and a whistleblowing policy, not just introducing them, but following them up? Mm, how to make it a real live, living, breathing thing is that question really, isn't it? Um, and there's another question here, if we bolt everything down, won't we lose efficiencies? Let's take both of those. Mm, I mean, I, these are very, very difficult questions, actually. Um, I mean, with regards to how do we get corporate buy-in, that's all about trying to instill a real-life anti-fraud culture that's not just a set of procedures which we just say, we now adhere to this. It's about salesmanship or salespersonship. We want to sell this idea. This is how much it costs. This is the reputational damage. This is the personal damage to you as a manager. This is why we don't want it. This is what we're going to do about it. We're going to have a corporate fraud culture, an anti-fraud culture. Part of that is relaunching whistleblowing. Part of that is um, having the corporate fraud risk assessment. There's a benefit for you. You'll be able to sleep better at night. Here are some publicized articles on similar frauds that could occur if we don't sort it out. So to me, this is a very soft kind of like hearts and minds thing, which I think is what you're alluding to in this, in this, uh, in this question. If we bolt everything down and uh, make fro things fraud proof, won't we lose efficiencies? We could, but that's where an effective corporate fraud risk assessment has to make workable recommendations. Clearly, if we bolt everything down, and reduce risks to nothing and likelihood to nothing, then you won't be operating, will you? We'd never drive a car, we'd never cross the street, we'd never do anything. Um, we'd never do anything we're not meant to do either. You know, no one would have a drink, no one would smoke, no one would do anything. So it's all about managing risk. So we have controls in place to try and manage that risk. So if we bolt everything down, you're quite right, things will become unworkable. We have to have key elements in place and in certain business functions, we are non-negotiable. We have to have effective controls about man bank mandate fraud to prevent it. We have to have effective controls that no one takes a verbal instruction. We have to have effective controls that emails you know, are vetted very stringently. We have to have that. And if it takes time, it takes time. Can auditors take a bigger role or be more aware of fraud detection when doing audits? Mm. In my experience, not sure they were clued up enough in, a, in AP. You're absolutely right. I love training auditors. They do come slightly um, unwillingly sometimes to my training that their corporate uh, directors have arranged because they think they might know already, and they do in their heart. But actually knowing how to run a proactive drive in an area of high risk, knowing how to run sampling exercises, knowing when to stick to systems and procedures, and knowing when to know what we're going to do some sampling even so that people know we've done it um, but what are the key risks they're looking at most auditors need some training it's very very true some auditors are fraud auditors i.e frauditors as a phrase but most are not so i take your point there is scope for training and that's a hearts and minds to get them to buy into that they can take a bigger role absolutely does fraud really have an impact on the bottom line or is it just the business cost that we need to account for? Mm, that's a tricky question, isn't it? Some businesses in the banking sector, credit card sector, clearly they have to accept that there's a certain amount of fraud that's going to occur on pay and wave. It's going to occur when someone steals my wallet, God forbid, when they have this, and I keep everything together. It's really intelligent. My phone, my wallet, everything, and Apple Pay, it's all on there. So um, they're going to have a little bit of a field day for a while. That That is an acceptable level of fraud. But in the corporate environment, often 
companies that I work with do not have a risk appetite for fraud or corruption or bribery. They simply have no appetite for it. Internal fraud, internal bribery, internal corruption. There's no appetite. Theft of intellectual property by staff, there is no appetite. So, <laughs> you know, the point I'm trying to make here is, yeah, it has an impact on the bottom line. Yeah, it's not just an expense. It can be destruction of your business because shareholders don't like this kind of thing. And there's only so much we can keep under wraps. Um, the word tends to get out. <laughs> um, do you have any examples of any real life investigations you can tell us about? I can. Um, I mean, I'm going to use something not in your SME sector. Um, I'm going to use, an well, actually, some, there must be some people from the government sector here. We have had some resounding mandate frauds in the council sector, the local authority sector, of very large amounts indeed, running into millions, which have not come to the fore. Uh, but they've, they've occurred with public funds. Some have been extreme near misses, and in some, actual money has been lost. So the mandate frauds are a very big, big problem, and they're not going away, and they're getting more intricate. The school sector is a very big sector of risk for mandate fraud and every other type of fraud you could imagine. I spend a lot of my time going into very large um, education environments at the moment. In the SME environment, we're looking mainly at the moment in terms of exploitations of IT risk. So people taking work laptops into cafe environments and then problems are occurring emails are getting hacked and then again it's leading to the mandate fraud problem where people have got proper business intelligence of what they're actually talking about in terms of transactions what is the best way to get senior managers to buy in to take this more seriously well they've got to understand i suppose people are motivated sometimes by fear and if they're so busy on delivery and targets and dealing with certain stuff that's biting them, they tend to leave the security fraud stuff to a side. They need to understand that it's a personal risk for them in terms of the continuity of their career when people like me get involved and start investigating and find negligence. I suppose is the hard answer to that. Has there been more requests for your services since COVID and working from home? I haven't stopped working, if that's what you're saying. I'm one of the few people I know that's been invoicing throughout the whole COVID period. So yes, there have been calls for my services and a lot of it is to do with vetting uh, not having been done properly in critical environments and that not coming out. Similarly, people having conflicts of interest in running their own businesses in work time undetected and then taking it a stage further and trying to orchestrate conflicts to pay those businesses and get them on as suppliers. So I've been very busy at the moment and I'm sure it's gonna get more busy as problems unfold as we go. Because public sector is bigger and the amounts of money are serially larger, things can get hidden easier in terms of people not noticing large amounts being defrauded. Whereas in an SME environment, People know their suppliers quite often and the kind of big amounts stick out a bit more in the public sector. You know, there are more problems that there, there's prevalence is the same, but success can be higher in the public sector. I've seen a vast increase in spam and phishing emails. Yeah, I've noticed this as well. Clearly, you know, if people are working from home, they're trying to exploit that. 
they're trying to exploit, I'm telling you what they're trying to exploit, they're trying to exploit certain members of staff trying to cram their essential transaction-based work into a small part of the day and not carrying it out to a high quality. So in some environments that might be possible. So that's what they're trying to exploit. They're trying to exploit a lack of professionalism in your environment where you, through osmosis, you're doing things correctly and there's a supervisors nearby and everyone's kind of like talking and doing it right. And they're trying to exploit you being lifted out of that and then also some people not concentrating properly and also some people trying to cram their work and also some people being very distracted by social media, um, which is going on, you know, iPads just there. You know, I'm on a Teams meeting, but I'm actually on my iPad. They're trying to exploit people taking their eye off the ball. External fraud is, is rife in some environments, absolutely. Uh, but internal fraud is far more insidious. And my experience is that once people find a way to perpetrate internal fraud through infiltration and then through erosion of systems, they can do it for a longer period of time. Once they get their feet under the table, they can commit internal fraud for a longer period of time, be it salami fraud, small amounts, or be it the one big hit, um, Obviously, the one hit, big hit is called the kamikaze fraud, mm. but it's a lot longer. I oft, I've often been involved in investigations where people have worked there for 20 years plus. <laughs> so you can only quantify some of the fraud because the documents are only available for a certain period of time. But when you think about it and average it all out using forensic accounting methods, um, you know, you can work out that the amounts would have been huge. And then when you look at the assets that have been purchased, when you follow the money and you look at the mortgages that could not be serviced on the work, work pay and the assets that have been purchased, you know what's been going on. So, yeah, corporate fraud, is far, it's very insidious, far more insidious, in my opinion. How would you get around hierarchical and silo working <laughs> to promote challenges to fraud resistance? That's a really good question. Whoever wrote that has massive respect to that intuition because this is the problem isn't it that causes fraud hierarchical and siloed working whereby one department payroll department is not thinking about processing this overtime they're just whacking it out <laughs> not thinking it's impossible to have done this much um yeah siloed thinking again it's the anti-fraud culture isn't it the key thing is the anti-fraud culture where everyone in the organization has good quality training is compelled feels passionate has some horror stories told to them, knows they got a role to play, are excited about the systems and procedures. It's only the anti-fraud culture that's going to do it, coupled with the fear factor, that if you don't do it, you might be held negligent. <laughs> and that could be bad. The Bribery Act um, stipulates, you know, corporate negligence essentially to prevent bribery is an offence that could result in millions being fined to the corporate entity so most corporate entities with bribery offenses i train these people and they know they're you know they know they don't want to get hit with that however you know the the penalties are more so career suicide to be honest and i i often see you know senior managers are no longer there when i come back for disciplinaries to give evidence for example it's like well where have they gone well decided that they were going to leave <laughs> so you know you're right there's penalties but the Penalties are often very personal and very difficult for people to bear because essentially, if it's happened on your watch, questions will be asked and you sometimes can't be protected if you have been grossly negligent because people aren't interested. They just want to know, why didn't you do it? Why didn't you sort it? Why didn't you prevent it?
you're a finance expert, aren't you? Isn't fraud prevention part of that, surely? 